Now the lounge is full of farmers for the sale. Everybody, welcome back. And Jonathan, I'm not going to mess up the intro this time. It's Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. And I didn't mess it up that time. Last time I went full oaky and said Rocks Across the Pond, embracing my inner Oklahoman. But yeah, welcome back. Uh, I'm Ryan McGee coming to you from Richmond, Virginia, and back in Southampton, England from his journey to Las Vegas is our very own Professor of Peel, Dr. Jonathan Havercroft. We're not going to turn into a noodling podcast, are we? We could. Noodling's fun. You ever been, have you ever been to that? I did go once. Oh, man, it's so great. It's How do strange. we explain it? How do we explain it to people who haven't it's been to Paul's Valley, Oklahoma? catfish catching. <laughs> <laughs> With your bare hands. And the world final is held in... Paul's Valley, Oklahoma, which is just a little bit south of Oklahoma City, and it is the best people watching in the world. It's an experience. Yeah. I'm sure Speaking of experiences, how was, how was the people watching in Vegas for Worlds? You know, the people watching. It, I, I have to say the demographic of the fandom of curling definitely skews retired Canadian from the prairies. <laughs> That's your demo. I was young. It, I was young for. I was a youngin in that crowd. I gotta say. Oh man! Even at the pool patch. Especially at the pool patch. <laughs> it, was, it was still retired Canadians at the pool patch. It was definitely retired Canadians at the pool patch. It was. It was definitely. It definitely skewed about ninety percent Canadian. Uh, there were some good pockets. The Scots were pretty solid, but I think they were mostly kind of family and tied to the team. But basically, they brought their whole the whole family over. And uh, Sweden was pretty strong. It was a pretty strong Swedish presence. And then I guess there were Americans there, but I, I didn't see any games that USA was playing in. So, um, but I did see a lot of American friends from around curling. So there were like American fans there too, but they were not. It was definitely like. The Canadians were the big draw for for Vegas, for sure. Well, that's the way it is. Anytime it's in North America, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's it's probably. I my hunch is this is that when it's been somewhere else in the U.S. and I haven't been to one in the U.S., it's probably the attendance has been lower, and it's probably because it's not as appealing a draw to a Canadian fan. Like going to North Dakota, going to Lowell, Mass is not going to be somewhere Canadians going to want to go to watch curling. So probably the Canadian pool is down a bit. But I think because Vegas is a tourist destination, that probably brought in more Canadians. And hence it had probably, I think, I think it had the biggest gate ever for um, a world's event in the U.S. They announced that just under 75,000, the final attendance, the closing game. And they said that was the record. And I, I'm sure it's entirely because of being in Vegas and pulling the Canadians down there for bit of gambling and a bit of curling it's also more draws too i think that's true too it's a bit of cheating isn't it yeah yeah so you your, your original plan was to be there all weekend and see the last draw on friday some however your selected airline had other ideas so tell take us through your weekend in vegas what you were able to see 
and what your takeaways were from the event. So yeah, I was supposed to come in Friday afternoon and uh, my flight was canceled. And as soon as your flight's canceled, it's a mess. And so the next flight I could get out was basically that same airline's flight out 24 hours later. So, um, so I said to spend an extra day in San Francisco. It's not the worst place in the world to be stuck for an extra day, no. but I wanted to go see the curling. So I missed the final draw of the round robin and the semifinal game and that the the new playoff format round as well. So I kind of I actually ended up missing three draws because of it. Uh, and so I only actually got to see three draws in the end, which is the second semifinal, the Canada Scotland semifinal, mm-hmm. then the bronze medal game Sunday afternoon, and the final uh, Sunday evening. So. So you, you know, saw a lot of blowouts. I did see a lot of blowouts. So that's that's kind of the other downer. But I think all three games were actually still pretty good to see. They weren't – it was more a case of one team just rolling on shot making and the other team being not so good, I'd say. Like, uh, yeah, when Scotland got up, that they got up by three, and I saw that Korea was basically going all out the next end. And I was sitting with, with Mark, who is my – my companion, I said, this is going to end fast. I, like they, they weren't out of it at that point, but they decided mm-hmm. to just go all out. And I think that, you know, Scott was able just to roll from that point. And uh, so that was a big blowout. Um, the Can- I mean, the Canada-Scotland game wasn't that much of a blowout. It was more just that uh, Gushu re- made two back-to-back runbacks. Was it in six or seven? And... Uh, just stuffed two two really really good shots and scored the three ender and that kind of that led to separation. Until that point, it was it was a tie game, I think. And that came that came after the long delay because I guess they did because because of the ice conditions that night and the above way above average humidity for Vegas, they wound up having to do a full scrape at the fifth end. Is that right? I don't. I, I never really got a clear explanation of why they scraped. Um, and who asked? Did the players ask for the scrape, or did uh, just the ice tech want to do it? My understanding from watching the WCF feed was the ice techs were the ones who initiated doing the scrape, um, and then and then the players each player was allowed to throw one stone. I can't say that I've ever seen anything like that before at this level. Yeah, I can't ever recall that happening. The only thing that's close to it is when the power went out at the St. John's Briar a few years back, and Gushu was in that game also. So mm-hmm. maybe Gushu is the, the bad ice curse or resurfacing <laughs> curse. But um, I think there they actually had them throw as many stones as they wanted. There was a fair bit of practice time there after the ice came back. Uh, different different rules officials, so it could be why you got a different and, result there. Uh and sc- Scotland was looking good until after that break, weren't they? they I mean, they were, I would say early on, I think Scotland clearly came, came to play and weren't going to be an easy out. And it really was Brad's back-to-back. Like, it wasn't just that he made the runbacks, he stuffed them perfectly. The first one, he just stuffed perfectly behind the guard, leaving uh, Bruce not much to throw. And the second one was just, like again, perfect hit and stick for three. Uh, you know, and mm-hmm. at that point it was at that point Scotland had to chase right, and they did. And it didn't work out, and so that was basically game over at yeah. that point. Yeah, the um, three, the three, they came out of the fifth in break. Canada forced Scotland to one. That made it uh, five to four Scotland, and then Brad got his three and seven to make it uh, seven to five. 
yeah. and then from then on scotland was was really having to chase yeah yeah and that was it <clears throat> pretty much so it was a big it was a big like it could have gone either way until then but it was a good game i, I mean it ended early but um whatever it's i i, I don't have a problem watching a game that's well played that yeah. ends early and yeah, to be all honest th- all three of them actually were well played yeah. All three of them had tremendous shot making. It's just all three of them also ended early. Yeah, and you know the 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 Korea one was the one where really the wheels just fell off. It, mm-hmm. And that's probably partly the effect of a bronze medal game, where perhaps that you know there's both teams are already fighting motivation after losing out on making the finals, um, and then one team gets a jump and yeah. Yeah, in that case, then Korea it's, kind of went for it. And then when they, they gave another steal, it was game over kind of thing. It's kind of like a college football bowl game. You know, there's always one team that wants to be there, and there's one team that really doesn't, especially, like, if it's one of those bowl games in, like, Shreveport. There's one team that's that's happy to be there, and there's one team that's not, and the final score usually reflects that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so one thing that's interesting is Scotland actually gets money out of that. So if you medal in a world championship event under the UK sports system, you get funding from UK sport for the next year, hmm. tax-free. So I, I'm not sure the exact amount, but it's, oh, wow. it's like 10, 20,000 pounds or something. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's graded according to what medal you get, but it's a non, for each player, so it's a non-trivial sum of money. It's basically f- free salary for a year. So So... There's a strong the, the uh, British sport puts in strong incentives for teams to perform internationally in sporting competitions. I don't know if that's the same case for Korea, if that's just a British sport thing. So, but at the very least, the difference between bronze and fourth for the Scots was significant. It was, it was, there was significant monetary incentive built in there. Uh, I don't know if that's the case for the Koreans or not. Um, but it's kind of something interesting to think about how different company, how different countries support their teams and what kind of incentives they build in for that, that bronze medal game, which isn't necessarily the, the most thrilling event to play in. And in, uh, after kind of coming off the high of playing to, for a berth for a world championship. So I'd have to say that I'm not, I wasn't terribly surprised by the teams that made the playoffs and the teams that wound up on the podium. Uh, what was kind of surprising was Bruce Mewitt going 11-1 in the round robin. Um, now, he did, he caught Brad Gushu in the very first game, and Gushu, of course, was had some comments about the ice after, after that game, but he played fairly well until he lost to Rich Roanen and the U.S. as a part of the U.S.'s five-game win streak to sneak into the playoffs, which was pretty remarkable, because when that team was 1-6, you're thinking is this team going to get relegated and then they turn it around and win those amazing five games to it's amazing the the turnaround that they had i don't think i don't think anyone when they were one in six could have seen that happening no yeah they went on a good run to to close up the week and make the playoffs so yeah it was it was amazing to see the difference in body language and communication with that team because they lost they uh they started out. They started out one. Yeah, started out one and six. But the the six were all in a row. They won their first game and then dropped six in a row. Four of those on uh, draws that they missed uh, with the final shot of the game. So I mean, by the time that they were one and six, you could see the looks on their faces of I can't even imagine what it's like to be in that situation where 
come in with high hopes and the week is just not going the way you thought it would, but somehow they managed to relax. Um, like I said, their body language completely changed once they started winning games, um, and you could definitely tell that in their game against Gushu in the round robin. Yeah, no, they definitely, yeah, I think they kind of found their their feet or ice feet or whatever you want to say, and definitely, you know, confidence is a tricky thing, right? If it if you don't um, if you don't have it, it's hard to get back. But sometimes all it takes is one win, and you get like a little bit of confidence back, and then you can kind of ride that momentum wave, especially in a, a short event like this where it's a week long. Uh, you know, I think I think basically it was a tale of two momentum swings, right? A couple of missed yep. shots early on kind of sent them into a downward spiral. Maybe you get to the point where they were almost just checked out or weren't kind of, they just didn't care anymore. It's a harsh thing to say, but maybe they just were kind of the point where they'd given up all hope. And that then, by not really being worried or putting that pressure on themselves, it let them kind of get on an upswing and then kind of get rolling from there. So it's, it's, a, weird, it's a weird thing, the confidence factor and how that can yeah. affect a team. I, th- I think that might have been a factor. Um, but the other thing was the communication really got cleaned up. I mean, there were a few shots, because I watched most of their games, and there were a few shots where, you know, the shooter didn't know really what the call was or the sweepers didn't know what the call was. Hmm. Um, and they were really running, their uh, their clock was running down really low each game. They were spending too much time talking about stuff. They were they were on Kevin Cooey levels of full team communication over each and every shot. Yeah. Uh, but that that kind of got cleaned up, and they kind of trusted trusted Rich and uh, and Greg Person trusted Rich Ronan and Greg Persinger to kind of lead the way there at the end instead of you know the whole team getting together for a powwow and everything was kind of cleaned up there by the end of the week yeah no and that's that's kind of a key i think so i think honestly if you're playing fast uh that normally means the whole team is kind of locked in and knows exactly mm-hmm. what it's doing a lot of the time you see that chit chat indecisiveness it's not just indecisiveness but that shop but it can sometimes be a sign the team's just not confident or trusting each other and, and being able to you know every shot in curling has all four teammates involved in it and you've, you've got to trust everybody right like if, if you're seeing the hack throwing you don't trust your sweepers to take it to the spot um you think it's going to go to you're not going to throw that stone cleanly right and vice versa the sweepers don't trust your throw yep. they may not judge it properly so trust and confidence and communication are all all big keys i think the other the other point i wanted to make as far as the actual games went. Uh, I think the surprise. I know you had mentioned uh, Yap Van Dorp going into the tournament, but the player I was surprised at was the 18-year-old from Japan, Go Aoki. He, you know, the team finished three and nine, but he himself had quite the highlight reel. By the time that the tournament was over, he was making some wicked shots, including one to get into an extra against the U.S. in what was his first game at a world. So. Um, he was at the Junior B tournament that you uh, coached in earlier this year. Did you get to see him play? Did you have? I mean, did he did he look like this? You know, when he was in Junior Bs, or uh, was did this come completely out of nowhere? No, I mean, I think he's he's got a reputation. He's been in that event a couple of times. He's got a reputation as being a really good shot maker. I mean, he 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 kind of if there's a double on the table he's going to take it on kind of thing right and he's he's pretty confident especially on his hits he's also got 
So they do that the skip third kind of kind of the third yep. skipping whatever thing. He's also actually a really good sweeper. Like his sweeping technique, uh, I think's phenomenal. Like he's definitely the Japanese curling phenom, right? Like he's the he's the kind of guy oh. up and coming who's who's gonna really shape Japanese curling for for years to come. So definitely someone to kind of keep an eye on. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's interesting that there. What? How many wins they get in the worlds? Uh, three. They went. They went three and nine. They went three and nine. Right? That's still pretty impressive because they they've. They, they, they actually, Yap Van Dorp's another one of the worlds. He got four wins, and and there's a, a bunch of pe- people have often don't think of the World Junior B event as being perhaps all that much, but um, I don't think I'm not sure if Yap ever got to Junior Worlds either or not. But I know he definitely would. He's kind of definitely was a, a perennial at the European B tournament, kind of the World Junior B. Um, predecessor and there's a, there's actually a lot of good talent in that tournament it's just only three teams out of 24 go up and i think japan do they just they either just missed out on the playoff spot or they got in and got bounced in the quarterfinal but they didn't play they, uh, they lost to spain in there they they almost ran in the because i was looking it up before yeah. coming into the worlds to see how he did and they yeah. went six and one in their round robin and then lost their first round game to spain so they yeah. did not make it up to junior a's basically yeah. so spain upset them and then spain yep. just lost the last spot so that that's like the the junior b pool is a tough tough event to get out of um and so there's actually there's there's several teams in there that I wouldn't be surprised uh, in the future kind of see them at the world stage. But certainly Aoki, I know Aoki still got three more years of junior, so he'll be back. Oh, wow. uh, he'll be back at World Junior B's next year. So <laughs> we may right, be so, in our pool. So yeah, you'll <laughs> definitely have the scouting so. report then. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We can get right, our pool. So the future is so the future is bright for Japanese curling. So that's good. I think so. Um, I mean, to me, like the at the B pool, the kind of the secret that shouldn't be so secret anymore is that the Asian Pacific teams are really coming on very strong. And even like five six years ago. That wasn't necessarily the case, but the Asia Pacific teams just New Zealand kind of did very well this year, and they're they're not necessarily thought of as being a world curling power, but both their men's and women's teams put in strong performances. Um, you know, Australia is still not quite there, and that's just a, simply a function they don't have any dedicated ice facilities. They're they're all they're an all arena curling nation, so just can't get the ice time and training to keep up with the others. But you know, Korea, Japan. China coming on strong. Hong Kong kind of had a pretty good uh, had a pretty good performance this year. They were they were threatening for a playoff spot out of our pool, and Hong Kong wasn't necessarily all that strong. And Kazakhstan, oddly enough, is coming on. Wow! So plus Russia, plus I guess Russia is kind of considered in Europe for world curling purposes. But yeah, regions you wouldn't think of normally as being super strong. There's a lot of junior talent coming up, and. Uh, some of some of the world teams in the past, they didn't really have people coming up from juniors. It was more they kind of took up the game later in life. But I think if you have someone from age 12 with like serious coaching, lots of international experience, um, give them a decade or two and they'll be in a dean, right? So. Mm-hmm. Right. So take us through. So you were you were there for, you know, only a couple days, but take us through what the experience was like watching a major curling uh, tournament at a casino. <clears throat> so it's kind of it's a pretty cool facility. I'd say first of all, the arena is pretty. I mean, one of the things about casinos is they're, they're flush with cash, and so this arena is pretty state of the art. Like, it, I'm not sure if they have they hosted minor league hockey or. 
Uh, yeah, I believe they did. Yeah, so kind of before the Golden Knights showed up. So it's definitely, yeah. it's de- you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, I think it's 10,000 seats for ice hockey. I'm not sure. This configuration at the far end was all kind of WCF stuff. So the press box, the umps bench, the coaching benches, all that. So they're losing a, like the back the back side of the arena. So I think the, the attendance, the, the capacity for this is around 7,000. Um, yeah, but the arena was kind of nice, state-of-the-art, uh, really really good sight lines, comfortable seats. Um, the one thing that's weird is um, playing in a desert, it's really dry, <laughs> which sounds, which may sound weird, but I, I, I mean, I've spent a lot of time in, high, in like ice rinks my whole life, and I never had the weird effect of kind of getting dry eye while oh, wow. um, being in an arena. Often, often it's the opposite. My eyes get a bit watery sometimes, so... Um, that that was kind of a weird effect, and I, I'm curious. That probably created different challenges for the ice makers, right, than they'd normally encounter. Because it, it was it wasn't super hot. It was maybe 80 outside, but the dryness was just noticeable. I was parched all week and was kind of constantly needing water. So um, yeah, you have to do that in the desert. Yeah, no, so the <laughs> they should have told you that. Yeah, the humidity is definitely a factor there. So or or lack of humidity actually but it was definitely a factor there but um no the arena itself was great the facility's great um the it was kind of they had a pa guy who did stuff in between ends it would be like you know like your typical minor league experience like some dumb trivia contest with a fan chucking t-shirts around a couple of times they do like a curling themed interview like they had ernie richardson interviewed him once they interviewed a wcf official named keith wendorf who's retiring uh, they brought Team Schuster out once, and Schuster, oh, nice. Schuster kind of said, "Oh, I'll be back next year to take my title from you guys." So he was, <laughs> he was already talking trash <laughs> to the other curlers. So <laughs> anyway, that was pretty good. Um, yeah, so there's a bunch of stuff like that. <clears throat> I think the, the the a few things that would have been could have been done better is the scoreboard didn't really have much curling info aside from the score. So they just put the score and the lineups up. And there wasn't really much info being fed from the ice level to the announcer. So, uh, like the the big one was we were just watching, and I was like, "Why are they scraping um, the ice? Like you never see the the, the ice oh during the, during the during the Scotland Canada game." Yeah, during the Scotland Canada game, they didn't they didn't do that. The other thing that was weird is so we could see the TV screen for the WCF feed and we could see when they were interviewing the players but they never fed the interview through like I know in a lot of sporting events these days they'll actually pipe through the interview with the mm-hmm. player on the field right and so that, that would have been like a one nice touch they could have done is kind of had the interview also piped through but they didn't do that so that, that was the one kind of disconnect um, I thought that could have been improved but aside from that I think it's, it was a good place to go see it um the casino is kind of interesting. I mean, it's a casino, right? So there's always tons of stuff to do. There's like lots of gambling to do. Um, there's like there's like 20 restaurants, bowling alley, movie theater. It's, it's kind of one of these giant entertainment complexes. So there, there's never, like we didn't have much time between the games and there was always something to do. Yeah, I was getting whatever. I was getting major FOMO from seeing photos on Twitter of people at the pool patch Um and people hanging out there at the casino. So what? What else did? What all did they have set up for for the fans outside of the arena, other than other than just curling? So the pool patch was 
it's so it's big. They had a giant pool and they had a bar, and then that was the other place they had a lot of interactivity. So they they would do, they did like an auction. They did a couple of auctions on the Saturday and Sunday of like autograph player gear, right? So that was kind of the big okay. kind of entertainment thing. So people could they kind of people there could go and bid on like you know signed a Dean jersey, signed Team Germany jerseys, whatever, right? So those were all really popular. Um, <clears throat> then they had like a bunch of like you know Team Schuster was there the entire time, uh, kind of signing stuff, and they did they did different signing things. So they used that as the primary kind of autograph venue, and they'd have a band or a DJ playing. So it was kind of just like a big party out there. So that was, and that was only open during the day up until the evening draw, so up until five o'clock. Then hmm. the evening after they'd open up what they called the night patch and so the one thing that was weird is the night patch was really dull <laughs> right so which is which is weird because i you know, i haven't been to one of these events before but the reputation is that you know the briar the the evening patch is always a crazy party um here they basically would run through you know you know like your t- not like your typical casino band not to whatever but you know like a band that was not a lounge singer not not a bad so the the two nights i was there one night was a country band which kind of would you know cover all the country hits and then um the sunday night was this band called nitro that was basically doing top 40 covers like from the 70s to today so you know they did uh they cover the ed sheeran song and they play like they cover guns and roses and they do some stuff from the 60s i mean the the band was was solid it's like one of those you know it's one of those bands like good musicians who probably never made it big but kept you know kept doing this as their gig and they're a pretty tight band but um the crowd was like just terrible it was just like uh i don't know there's maybe maybe 40 or 50 people both nights and they oh, ran wow. out of beer the first night, which was hilarious. Like, I was up there. The the thing. Opened How do you run night. out of beer if there's only that many people? Well, it's. Canadian. I I have no idea. Well, there was there was a joke. So Mark and I were sitting down. There's a table next to us with like four women. <laughs> it was like all beer bottles. They had to have had thirty beer bottles on the table, and the the patch had only been open like thirty minutes. <laughs> and Mark's like Canadian women. I was like, yep. <laughs> so but yeah no the first night i went up i just like i just want a bud light and the guy's like we have no bud light no we basically had no light beers no lagers it was like heineken or like the local craft pale ale so i had the local craft pale ale which was it was all right but that but they were like running out of beer like 40 45 minutes in wow which was a bit weird to me so but I mean, a few steps away, you had a casino that had free drinks as yeah, long as you were gambling. Exactly. No. So we just bent back down and did that. So it's not like, it's not like, I, it was just, so to me, the thing was that part probably wasn't as good as at other curling events, particularly in Canada. Like the patch is always kind of held as sacred. The pool patch was fun, but the patch patch was like you know not 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 really hopping all that much so i mean no offense to whatever casino might be in brandon manitoba but next year i can't imagine that that's going to be the place to be rather than the patch i mean but you can kind of you can kind of understand why it would have been that way in las vegas though yeah that people want to go gambling instead or yeah, gambling shows. There's, I mean, there's a lot more to do at night in Vegas. During the day, yeah, you want to hang out by the pool and drink. But at night, there's, you know, you don't want to hang out and watch 
a lounge singer unless uh, unless you're also at at the tables. Yeah, yeah. No, it was it's always different, right? It's a different experience than your classic curling experience. And it, it See, sounds that's they, like that's what they should have done was they should have had tables or uh, slot machines there in the patch. Yeah, I don't know. They could have. I don't know where they could have done that. That's a good idea. They could have had some more. There was just yeah, it was just a weird setup. It was just like not. There was nothing going on there basically. So. I don't know, but it's not, it's not, you know, exactly like you said, it's like people didn't come there for the patch experience. They came there for Vegas plus curling. Right. And so they got that for sure. So what's your, what's your final grade on worlds at Las Vegas? Should they do it again? Or is it more of, cause one of the things I saw, you know, that the attendance wasn't great at the beginning of the week and then it definitely picked up for the last weekend. So is this more of a place that should host more continental cup style where it's just you know, someone, a bunch of people on Twitter said, well, Vegas is the ultimate four-day city. Um, you can't really, you don't really want to host a nine-day event there. No one's going to stay for nine days in Vegas. They die. Yeah, I think, well, I think, so it sounds like Continental Cup's coming back in 2019. And so my hunch is it's basically now in a rotation of every other year, right? And mm-hmm. so that, that probably... I think they love having the curling there. I think uh, they, 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 the club plays there, right, or whatever, plays at an arena. Has the, the Sin City Bonspiel has been hosted there in the past, too, okay. which uh, uh, I think actually if someone's looking – to me, I'd say, yeah, the Continental Cup definitely want the spectator experience. But having been there in the facility, I'd, I'm not sure if they keep running the Sin City Bonspiel there or not. But if the, they put a Bonspiel back in there, that's where you want a Bonspiel. Oh, that's yeah. Like, that's like the best. I never had a chance to go to Sin City Bonspiel. But if I was in the U.S. curling these days, I think I'd add that to the rotation pretty quickly. Because it's just it's the perfect setup for that. Because you, you can just walk from your hotel room to the rink and then all the parties in between. So, yeah. I don't know. Like you said, I'm not sure if an, a 10 day event. I, I mean, I you couldn't have. You have to be really rich to, <laughs> <laughs> or or really lucky, <laughs> really rich or really lucky, because the hotel rooms were not cheap. And uh, Mark bet a lot, and that didn't get us a discount. So you got to bet <laughs> way more than Mark did. So, uh, or maybe it was because I didn't bet enough. I don't know. Anyway, I think that might. I think you're the one. As usual, whenever Mark and I went anywhere with you, you were the one bringing us down. Ah, that sucks. (laughs) I'm sorry, man. (laughs) All right, so thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, We hope you enjoyed our rundown of Vegas Worlds, including Jonathan's uh, from-the-scene report of what that tournament was like. We will get back into club curling and the growth of this sport in grassroots uh at our next episode uh jonathan do you have anything else you want to add before we hit the road i'm back on the road i'm going to italy this weekend to coach some junior curling at the international junior curling club bonspiel so i'll be in pinarolo so i'll give you a report oh. what curling's oh. like in italy and it's gonna is, be is that the is that the same venue they used in 06 yes so I'll get to go see an Olympic venue for curling. I've actually been to Vancouver Curling Club is where they had a 2010 one. So that'll be my second time, I think, in wow. an Olympic curling venue. But a bit more curling left, even though the worlds are done. Right. So a uh, bit more on the coaching I've, side, but that'll I've be got good. My first, I've got my first bond spiel in over a year coming up. I'm going to the Carolina Classic at Triangle Curling Club in Durham here uh, in a couple of weeks. So I'm excited to actually 
actually curl in games that matter again. It'll be the it'll be the first competitive rock I've thrown since June of last year. So we'll see how that goes. All right. So you've been coaching but haven't been playing, basically. Yeah, we have a weird season based on when we can get ice. Uh, so it's been it's been about ten months since I've thrown a competitive rock. So that'll be. I imagine we'll go zero and three. And looking at our schedule, if we go zero and three, we'll be done at ten a.m. on Saturday. <laughs> oh, that sucks. Yes, man, that sucks. All right, well, don't go zero and three. I'm gonna try. The games get easier the more you lose. So lose the first two. Lose the first two and then win out. And then kick win someone's out. ass in the sea pool. We just don't. If we lose our second game, we definitely play at eight a.m. Regardless of how we do in our first game, if we lose our second, we play at 8 a.m. So the goal is to win the second game, regardless of what happens. So is that a night game? Like yeah, we play, we, play, we play Thursday night. Oh, it's a four-day spiel. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, except, okay. for, except for when you have limited PTO. <laughs> yeah. Then it's not as sweet. I guess so. All right, so we'll have we'll have full reports from Italy, and we'll get into some more club curling the next time that you hear us. So thank you all for listening. Uh, if you have any feedback, if you have any questions for us, please hit us up on Twitter at Curling Podcast. Send us an email at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com, and be sure to subscribe and rate our show wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you, everybody. We will see you again real soon. Bye.